This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to our program today, and thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and for the first report of today's episode, we'll take a look at a phenomenon happening with American companies in which the bottom line is no longer the main factor driving decision-making. Instead, an increasing number of them are prioritizing radical social engineering and the promotion of various radical political policies, even when that cuts directly into their profitability. We'll hear about what's driving this trend in a report by trumpet writer Andrew Miller. In our second segment, we take a look at the influence of America in the tremendously important region of the Middle East. The U.S.'s allies there are turning their back on it and easing away from it and turning to other partners in America's place. We'll hear all about what's behind this trend and where it's leading in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. The third story of today's show will look at the military power that Germany is quietly building. Much of this is happening secretly, quietly, and not even with German forces, but instead with those of other European nations that Germany will be able to commandeer. It's happening subtly, but it's building to something explosive, as we'll hear about in a report by trumpet writer Josue Michels. And then our last word today is about a widely influential essay that was published on this day in history, June 7th, back in 1798. And one big reason why the danger that this essay warned about never really materialized. So that'll be our final segment, and we'll begin now with a look at American companies who are choosing politics and radical ideology over profitability in this report from Andrew Miller. Companies across America have decided that going carbon neutral supporting Black Lives Matter, and hiring transgender influencers is more important than making money. In short, companies are going woke. Amazon, Anheuser-Busch, Bank of America, Etsy, Disney, GoFundMe, Instacart, J.P. Morgan Chase, KitchenAid, PetSmart, Walmart, and YouTube are just a few of literally thousands of companies prioritizing radical social engineering schemes above their bottom line. This revolutionary way of thinking has gone mainstream. This dangerous trend was spotlighted recently in a showdown between Anheuser-Busch and its customers after the company featured the transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney in a commercial promoting Bud Light beer. After the days of girlhood male actor tried to sell Bud Light while wearing women's clothing on April 1st, Budheiser sales plunged at nearly 25%, yet the company refused to renounce its campaign. Executives tried to blame the partnership on local supervisors, but refused to apologize despite plummeting sales. Therefore, it's clear that these executives are motivated by something other than profits. Target is also facing boycotts over a new line of LGBTQ-friendly swimwear for children. Meanwhile, PetSmart sells rainbow-colored cat collars, Pride Dog bikinis, and Pride Vibe tank tops for lizards. 
Walmart donated half a million dollars to PFLAG, one of the largest groups in the United States that advocates for lesbian, homosexual, bisexual, transgender, and queer causes. And GLSEN, an organization that both Target and PetSmart financially support, has sent more than 46,000 LGBTQ plus affirming books to 4,600 public schools nationwide. So many Americans are wondering what's going on with woke corporatism. It doesn't seem like society at large is demanding transgender beer, pro-trans merchandise for children, and tuck-friendly women's swimsuits designs to accommodate male anatomy. Yet corporations are pushing these changes anyway because they have been hijacked by a cabal of radical social engineers determined to restructure society. An expose in the New York Post reveals that America has what you could call a woke industrial complex. The reason so many large companies are suddenly celebrating transgender celebrities, even at the cost of losing customers and millions or billions of dollars, is that they're being bullied into it. The American author, cultural critic, and mathematician James Lindsay compared this complex to an extortion racket like the Mafia. And companies that comply with the Mokwafia are rewarded with financing and praise. Companies that defy it are punished. Here's how this woke industrial complex works. Much of the power that woke liberals have amassed is concentrated in the human rights campaign. The largest lesbian, homosexual, bisexual, transgender, queer activist group in the world. This group receives tens of millions of dollars per year from George Soros' Open Society Foundation, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, and Planned Parenthood Federation for America. One of its main projects is generating what it calls a corporate equity index, which measures a company's favorable policies, practices, and benefits pertinent to lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgenders, and queer employees, according to their own website. Companies that attain the maximum 100-point score receive the coveted Best Place to Work for LGBTQ Equality title. The Human Rights Campaign's website states that 1,271 companies actively participated in this campaign, including 379 Fortune 500 companies. And it seems to grant these companies an average score of 94% across its categories. Now, this corporate equity index would be about as relevant as any other formula made up by a special interest faction, except that it's part of the environmental, social, and government's business management model. This set of standards evaluates a company based on how its leaders use their power to change the environment and society. Everyone wants business to have sound effects on the environment society, but it just so happens that those in charge of these programs define what is good as what is radical, what is woke, and what is liberal. It also happens that environmental, social, and corporate government's definition of good and bad is being pushed by th the three largest passive investment management firms in America, BlackRock, the Vanguard Group, and State Street Corps. 
These megaliths control over $20 trillion and own over 20% of the shares in the average S&P 500 company. That percentage is predicted to double in the next two decades. So for obvious reasons, these firms have tremendous power to appoint corporate board members and executives across America and thereby influence the governance of hundreds of thousands of large companies. They're using this power to pressure companies into supporting homosexuality, transgenderism, and other perversions at the cost of destroying their moral and financial interest. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has criticized ESG as an attempt by Davos elites to impose ideology through business institutions, while entrepreneur Elon Musk has said he is increasingly convinced that corporate ESG is the devil incarnate. Both men are more right than they realize. ESG was coined by elites in the 2006 United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment Report. It is designed to add the power of megacorporations to the ongoing effort to destroy the traditional family. So like the devil, this system pretends to be good while ripping apart the nuclear family, which is the basic building block of any stable society. Publicly traded companies continue promoting transgenderism in the face of public backlash because they are more fearful of BlackRock CEO Larry Fink Vanguard Group CEO Mortimer Buckley and State Street CEO Ron Hansley than they are concerned about their customers, and in some cases, even their profit. Now, during the time of the ancient Israelite King Jeroboam II, the prophet Amos condemned selfish leaders who prioritized their own ambitions while afflicting their people. You can read that prophecy in Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. These elites put far away the evil day, acting as if their slavish lifestyles would last forever and ignoring threats to the nation. Yet an even more specific prophecy reveals how the devil uses an organized host to cast truth to the ground. In Daniel 8, verses 11 through 12, it reads, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down, and a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced, and it prospered. Now, most Bible commentaries will tell you that King Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled this prophecy about 380 years after it was recorded, when he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem with an idol of himself. Yet the prophecies of Daniel are primarily to be fulfilled in the end time. These latter-day prophecies are about a destructive king of fierce countenance is also being fulfilled in God's church and in America in our time. Strong's Concordance defines host as a mass of persons um, arrayed as for war. And depending on the context, the expression can refer to an army of demons, angels, or men. The host referred to here in Daniel 8 is an army of demons and evil men who help an end-time Antiochus figure cast truth to the ground. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry explains in his book America Under Attack that the spiritual Antiochus cast down truth to the ground inside God's church, and a political Antiochus is doing the same thing in the United States. 
As the most anti-Bible president in American history, Barack Obama fulfills the role of the political Antiochus. He is technically out of office now, but is still pulling the strings of the Biden administration, and his alliance with big media, big tech, and big business remains strong. A host of bureaucrats, military leaders, intelligence agents, media moguls, tech entrepreneurs, and Wall Street financiers are helping Antiochus cast truth to the ground. This network is actually the biggest threat to America today. It aims to destroy the U.S., its Judeo-Christian history, its constitutional form of government, and perhaps most of all, its natural and biblical family structure. God is exposing the corruption so people can repent before a lawless spirit destroys America by replacing the rule of law with the horrifying rule of force. When people do not sincerely love the truth, they come to believe lies. The values that helped make America great are being cast to the ground, but Antiochus and his supporters can only do this by reason of transgression. The devil is exploiting America's lawlessness and lack of faith. God will allow this to continue until people come to see the need for true repentance towards God. This is Trumpet Hour on KPCG 101.3. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and America's influence in the Middle East is quickly evaporating. Longtime partners view the U.S. as increasingly unpredictable and unreliable, so they're turning their backs on America and instead drawing near to other partners, as we'll hear about now in this report from Mihailo Zekic. Since World War II, the United States has been arguably the most influential outside player in the Middle East. Whether it was the Suez Crisis, the Camp David Accords, or the Persian Gulf War, few events could happen in the Middle East without getting the U.S. involved. But for the last few years, this American reality is changing, and it is changing fast. Events like the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and the ongoing Iranian nuclear negotiations make clear to America's allies that the U.S. is backing out of the Middle East. What does an America-less Middle East look like? Some countries are already bracing themselves for this reality. Perhaps one of the obvious signs of this is Saudi Arabia's outreach to Iran. 
For decades, Saudi Arabia and Iran have been engaged in what some dub a Middle Eastern Cold War, with both sides sponsoring proxy groups all over the Middle East. Egypt, the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Bahrain, all were territories of this little Cold War. On March 10th, Saudi Arabia and Iran agreed to restore diplomatic relations. Perhaps there was nothing too unusual with that. After all, the United States and Russia still have diplomatic relations even amid the ongoing war in Ukraine. Iran, however, still sponsors terrorism around the region. Iran is still going full steam ahead with its nuclear program. Iran still represents a rival branch of Islam. Yet what has happened since March 10th is nothing short of unusual. Many, if not most, of the theaters of this so-called Cold War are being mysteriously settled, and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the kingdom's de facto leader, seems to be the one spearheading it. He pushed to have Bashar Assad's Syria, an ally of Iran, brought back into the Arab League as a full member. He's made outreaches to Hamas, Iran's proxy in Gaza, and most significantly, perhaps, is that he's planning on bringing an end to Yemen's civil war. The Saudis entered the Yemeni capital of Sana'a on April 9th for peace talks with the Houthi rebels. The talks are still ongoing, but they've already made tangible progress, the Houthis and the Yemeni government has swapped about 900 prisoners. The Saudis, for their part, unilaterally released 104 prisoners to the Houthis. The current round of talks concluded April 13th. Now, some context. For about eight years, the Yemeni government has faced an uprising from the Houthi movement, which is an Iranian proxy that wants to turn Yemen into an Islamist theocracy. The Saudis back the Yemeni government and associated militias. Saudi Arabia and the Houthis, meanwhile, have lobbed bombs and drones across the border at each other. Much has to be ironed out, but the Saudis have made it clear that they want a disengagement. This would effectively put Yemen into the hands of the Iranian proxy. At the very least, it legitimizes the Houthis' presence in the country, Yemen sits on the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, the southern exit point of the Red Sea. Whoever controls the Bab al-Mandeb controls trade from Asia to Europe and the Mediterranean. It's a highly strategic piece of real estate that the Saudis are giving up without a fight. It is one thing to have a diplomatic reset. It is very much another to let your enemy get everything it wants. In this case, keeping its proxy empire in the Middle East intact. What is going on with these diplomatic maneuverings? Well, Crown Prince Mohammed's actions have a lot to do with what's going on in the United States. Ever since Joe Biden entered the White House, relations between America and Saudi Arabia have gotten much colder. Biden has been hostile to Saudi Arabia for its involvement in the Yemeni war and for the 2018 murder of Saudi dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi, while campaigning for president, Biden said that he would make the Saudis pay the price for human rights violations and make them a pariah. 
Since coming into office, he has issued sanctions on the Saudi security establishment and put travel bans on Saudi officials. Saudi Arabia, meanwhile, sees the kind of favor America is currying with Iran through things like the nuclear negotiations, through the unfreezing of billions of dollars worth of assets, which are still ongoing, and even the removal of nuclear sanctions without a nuclear deal. And it also sees how America has demonized Saudi Arabia's role in the Yemeni war, even as jihadists were taking over Yemen. Crown Prince Mohammed could be seeing Yemen as a lose-lose situation and is cutting his losses. In other words, he is letting Iran have Yemen. A lot still has to happen before Iran takes complete control of the country, but his disengagement and his accepting of the Houthis' presence in the country say a lot. But it isn't just Saudi Arabia turning away from America. So is Israel. Israel relies on America heavily for security, and the two have strong cultural ties. But there are signs that things are not right with the Israel-America relationship. Israel is even more terrified of Iran than Saudi Arabia is. One of the main reasons everybody is nervous about Iran's nuclear program is because Iran sees Israel as a blasphemy for being a Jewish state occupying Jerusalem, which of course is holy to Muslims, among others. Everybody knows that if the Iranians get a nuclear bomb, they would use it. But as the trumpet has previously covered, America's nuclear negotiations, going all the way back to the original JCPOA deal in 2015 brokered by then-President Barack Obama, all but ensured that Iran would get a nuclear bomb. Since taking office, Biden has shown he wants a similar deal with Iran. Israel doesn't trust the American deal, but they still don't want Iran to get a bomb. So, they're turning to an interesting potential partner. On April 17th of this year, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen spoke with his Chinese counterpart, Kin Gong. Cohen spoke with Kin about China becoming more involved in Iranian nuclear affairs. Here's a quote from Cohen about that phone call. Quote, I spoke with Chinese Foreign Minister Kin Gong about the danger we see in Iran's nuclear program, a danger shared by many countries in the region, including countries with diplomatic relations with Iran. The international community must act immediately to prevent the regime of the Ayatollahs in Tehran from achieving nuclear capabilities. The state of Israel will act in every way to prevent Iran from achieving nuclear capability. End quote. There are other tantalizing suggestions that Cohen did more than just discuss Iran's nuclear program with Kin. He may have even offered for China to mediate some sort of deal. An Israeli foreign ministry statement said that Cohen asked Kin, quote, to exert his influence on Iran and halt the progress in Iran's nuclear program, end quote. Meanwhile, an April 22nd Telegraph article by James Rothwell cited an anonymous source familiar with Israeli policy on Iran, claiming that, quote, if China brokered a symbolic deal with Iran, 
such as a commitment to freezing the program at the current threshold, then this could be sold as a diplomatic win by all three countries. End quote. China is one of Iran's closer allies. But China is also an opportunistic country looking to boost its international credentials. The Chinese have a lot of economic leverage over Iran, and the March 10th normalization between Iran and Saudi Arabia was also brokered by China. Israel may think that China could pull a few strings, so to speak, to get Iran to cut back on its nuclear program. China is also a communist totalitarian state waging literal genocide within its borders right now. That Israel would want China to get more involved in the Middle East shows just how serious they are at stopping Iran's march to the bomb. Another current American partner made an interesting announcement on May 31st. The United Arab Emirates announced that it has pulled out of the Combined Maritime Forces, or CMF. The CMF is an American-led coalition force of, counting the Emiratis, 38 nations headquartered in Bahrain. Its purposes include countering illegal activities such as piracy in places like the Persian Gulf, but it also serves as a united front to counter Iranian influence in the region. The alliance includes various countries in the Middle East and Europe, and even countries as far away as Brazil, Singapore, and the Philippines. Gulf Arab states like the UAE, which rely heavily on the oil trade through the Strait of Hormuz, which is the little sea gate connecting the Persian Gulf with the Indian Ocean that directly borders Iran, are especially vulnerable. Most Gulf states are also America-oriented monarchies, vulnerable to extremism, as sponsored by Iran. Every other country on the Persian Gulf, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, and even Iraq and Qatar, two countries friendly with Iran, contribute to this force. One would think the UAE would have every incentive to stay in the force. This is rather strange, but even stranger is that the United States and the CMF have insisted the UAE is still a member state. The CMF's website still lists the UAE as such. Commander Tim Hawkins, a United States Navy spokesman, said, quote, CMF remains a multinational partnership of 38 nations, of which the UAE is one, end quote. Either the UAE, then, is making its status deliberately ambiguous, or there is a spat between it and the United States, or both. To add another wrinkle, the UAE's announcement came a day after the Wall Street Journal published an article about friction between the Emiratis and the Americans. On April 27th and May 3rd, Iran seized two oil tankers. The first was shipping Kuwaiti oil to Texas, while the second was transiting between the Emirati ports of Dubai and Fujairah. The UAE didn't think the United States was fulfilling its mission of protecting trade in the Persian Gulf with the two seizures. The United Arab Emirates has every incentive to stay in the combined maritime forces, except that it is seeing the force is failing to fulfill its mandate. If anything, publicly siding with America would make the Emirates more of a target to Iran. Separating from the CMF, 
and so far being the only Gulf Arab state to do so, could be the UAE's signal to Iran to leave its ships alone. Iran, always the opportunist to humiliate America, may oblige. And this could lead down the road to other CMF member states leaving the bloc. So to answer the question we asked at the beginning of this segment, what does a Middle East without America look like? It looks like one where Iran is ascendant, where it takes more and more territory and makes its neighbors scared, where America's former allies start making decisions and taking courses that normally would have been off the table. In other words, it is a Middle East that is a lot more chaotic. But when room for chaos is made, one of two outcomes can be expected. Either the chaos increases until total destruction happens, or another strong force steps in to fill the void. Bible prophecy says that such a strong force will fill America's void. Daniel 11 verse 40 is a prophecy of two end-time power blocks, a king of the south and a king of the north. The king of the south is a pushy, provocative power that likes stepping on his neighbor's toes. The succeeding verses show that he has a large proxy empire in the Middle East and Africa. It is a power who is king, who is a dominant power in his area. For decades, the trumpet has identified this king of the south as radical Islam led by Iran. Iran used to be, to varying degrees, held in check by America. But Bible prophecy says that Iran is going to grow and grow in power until it becomes king, the most intimidating power in the local region. And Iran's ascendancy is going to scare people to go looking for a savior. But it won't be America. This leads to the king of the north. Now, combining biblical with secular history shows that this king of the north in our day is a European power led by Germany, a power which sees Iran's provocations, one which takes them seriously, and one which will do something about it once and for all. So the Daniel 11 verse 40 prophecy mentions Iran and Europe. The succeeding verses reference places like Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, Russia, and China. But where is America? Trumpet editor-in-chief Chiro Fleury wrote the following in his free book, The King of the South, quote, The prophecies we have studied in this booklet point to a time when the United States is no longer a major player in the Middle East. Once America is gone, this king of the south will set its sights on another target, the king of the north. Further down, think seriously about the fact that this coming war will not occur at the hands of America or Britain. These nations aren't even involved in this prophesied war. That is because they are going to fall into social and economic ruin before this prophecy is even fulfilled. The time when Britain and America were superpowers or kings, is history. 
end quote. The recent power shifts in the Middle East are a sign that this prophesied collapse is about to happen. And America's allies are bracing themselves for it. It won't be long until they look to somebody like Europe to step in. When this happens, your Bible prophesies that this world will be rocked. To learn more, please request a free copy of The King of the South at thetrumpet.com. This is Trumpet Hour. We really appreciate you staying with us through this episode. For the next segment here, we'll take a look at the military power that Germany is quietly building. Much of this is happening behind the scenes and somewhat secretly, and a great deal of it is occurring not with German forces, but instead with those of other European nations that Germany will be able to commandeer. And it's all building up to something explosive, as we'll hear about now in this report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. The mainstream media doesn't cover it. News analysts ignore it. Politicians don't discuss it. The world doesn't fear it, but the European military is already in place. After building and fielding two of its own World War class forces in the past century, Germany is now building a multinational army. Some have confused quietness with weakness. But anyone who knows Germany's history knows that secrecy is its strength. Foreign policy noted, Germany is quietly building a European army under its command. German war planners have built a lot, both before that article was published in 2017 and since. In 2018, French President Emmanuel Macron openly called for the creation of a real European army. There is work yet to be done, but the core of that military is already a fait complete, and it will not be commanded by France. Germany is operating on multiple fronts, integrating the forces of other nations under its command, using NATO for its own purpose, drastically increasing military spending exporting weapons and German interests abroad and participating in joint missions around the world. News analysts have ignored it, governments have dismissed it, but a German-dominated European military that the trumpet has warned about for decades is now a reality. On March 30th, the last Dutch combat brigade joined the division of the German army. The integration of all Dutch combat land forces is a prime example of Germany's goal of building a multinational military force. This cooperation has been decades in the making. 
It has been made possible by language training in Dutch schools, joint exercises, and the 24 Bundeswehr training facilities open to soldiers from other European Union nations. Also German troops are on staff at 55 training facilities for other militaries across Europe. No other European country has subordinated its entire land force to the Germans yet. But in 2017, Romania agreed to have its 81st mechanized brigade work closely with Germany's Rapid Response Forces Division. This division is now in charge of a Dutch and Romanian brigade. The Czech Republic agreed to have its elite 4th Rapid Deployment Brigade work with Germany's 10th Armed Division. That division now commands a Dutch and a Czech brigade. The Czech Republic is just a step away from doing the same as the Netherlands. A mechanized brigade includes armed personnel carriers or infantry fighting vehicles, which are crucial to a nation's defense. The Czech Republic has only two of these in its land combat forces. One of them is now under German command. Romania has given up one of its eight brigades. France, twice conquered by invasions of German troops in world wars, has consistently supported European unification and even German leadership for decades. The French-German Brigade was established in 1989. Since 1992, it has been part of the Eurocorps, which includes four additional core nations, plus five associated nations. The Eurocorps serves Europe and NATO and is one of the latter high readiness commands. France and Germany have also joined industrial forces to manufacture military equipment that is compatible with the militaries of several countries and German weapons manufacturers are supplying militaries worldwide with weapons, platforms, small arms and other technologies. Though only a few countries have literally subordinated their soldiers to German command, many more are joining German-led exercises under the cloak of NATO cooperation. Germany is leading and coordinating Europe's armies. The more you look under the umbrella, the more you see Germany commanding a European army. More and more Germans are taking the lead in an alliance that originally formed in part to stop them from building a military. Germany is no longer the conquered aggressor, nor is it completely dependent on the US as it was in the Cold War. It is steadily increasing its power over NATO. Finland joined the NATO alliance on April 4th. Within 10 days it was included in a joint military exercise. Was it the United States? Britain or France that led that mission? No, Finnish, Portuguese and German forces in standing NATO Maritime Group 1 were commanded by a German. 
Germany is also working with Britain's Royal Navy at a new naval headquarters in Rostock. The headquarters will command operations for the United Nations, NATO, the German Navy and the European Union. In the meantime, the EU held its first ever joint naval exercise with the US on March 23rd and 24th. While other nations might be in leadership positions, watch for German admirals to gain more and more control over European naval exercises. Presently, Germany holds the leadership over NATO's highest readiness military force. The unit includes 11,500 troops from nine NATO countries. These troops are always on standby, ready to deploy within days. Germany is leading the rapid deployment of European troops under the NATO umbrella, but is also preparing to do the same without NATO help. In 2018, NATO accepted Germany's offer to establish a NATO command center that focuses on rapid troop movement across Europe. Unlike other headquarters, this one does not fall under NATO's command structure. Thus the same troops that Germany currently leads in the NATO framework could be under Germany's command in an EU army. To facilitate all the details of such an army, the German-led EU also established a military pact called Permanent Structured Cooperation. This governs logistics, transportation and training missions that will help member countries coordinate the operations. Meanwhile, German generals receive practical training within the NATO framework. In Eastern Europe, NATO soldiers are also taking orders from a German. In 2021, Lieutenant General Jürgen Joachim von Standrat became commander of operations on NATO's northeastern flank near Russia. NATO's supreme headquarters is in Mons, Belgium. Subordinate to it are six commands. One of the most important is located in Germany. Rammstein Air Base, headquarters of NATO's Air Command. American nuclear bombs are deployed in six European bases, including Germany's Bushel Air Base. They can be carried by German and Italian tornado warplanes. The nuclear weapons are currently controlled by the US, and Rammstein is an installation of the US Air Force. But in addition to hosting American forces and being one of five European nations that are part of NATO's nuclear weapons sharing agreement, Germany is acting on its own initiative to strengthen, unite and control European military capabilities in the air. Germany has organized the largest NATO air exercise ever, Air Defender 23. These war games in June will involve 220 aircraft and 10,000 personnel from more than 20 nations. Under the NATO umbrella, the exercise is under German command and initiative. 
the magazine Air and Space Forces noted that the exercise was organized by Germany, not NATO headquarters. German General Michael Lowe told Deutsche Welle, I'm not sure why it's German-led to tell you the truth. I know that Germany wanted to lead an exercise to test both their ability to host forces and also their ability to do full NATO interoperability. That's what Germany wanted. And what it got was the largest transatlantic movement of its kind. If you wanted to build and test the European Air Force, you couldn't ask for better military exercise. Germany says it is ready to defend the NATO alliance. But watch for clues showing that it is learning how to use European forces quite independently of the alliance. That is to say, independent of and even at odds with the United States and Britain. NATO also established a space center at Allied Air Command in Rammstein in 2020. This is controlled by the US, but Germany is also working on its own independent space command. This command, launched in 2021, combines elements of Germany's air and cyber forces and secures its satellites independently from NATO. Germany is also a key member of the European Space Agency, which is actively preparing for missions to the moon. If Germany wants an independent European military, this too is a crucial step. Since the early days of the Cold War, analysts have agreed that whoever controls space can control a great deal of what happens below. In addition to increasing its control in NATO, Wherever it can, Germany is conducting operations well outside of the alliance. To make such operations possible, Europe needs its own strategic airlift capacity. For decades it has relied on the United States for this. That is now changing. This crucial need is filled by the Airbus A400M, the world's most technologically advanced military transport aircraft. Fleets of this large transport enable Europe to massively expand its ability to operate independently of the United States. Many nations, including Germany, have stated that they actually have little need for all these airlifters. But this could change as the US increasingly withdraws our threats as near as Ukraine and as far away as the Pacific continue to multiply. Various foreign missions allow Germany, through the EU, to build a necessary structure to lead and coordinate future European military missions. It took Germany decades to reach this point, but now its multinational military, its influence in NATO, its technological development, in its core structures, against the backdrop of increasing threats surrounding Europe, are combining to produce a situation in which the small but growing European military can become a superpower rapidly. In 1957, Germany was still recovering from its second 
devastating World War defeat. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote at the time, Germany is going to rise again with great power. Before he witnessed that economic, diplomatic and finally military ascent, he saw it in the pages of the Bible. Revelation 17 describes a union of ten kings who give their power and strength to a beast, a united European empire. A vision that God inspired the prophet Daniel to record helps reveal who this empire is. Daniel 2 gives an overview of all the world-ruling empires that lead to God's prophesied intervention in the affairs of mankind. History identifies these empires as Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. The Roman Empire has risen repeatedly over the centuries and the Bible reveals that it is rising one final time in modern Europe. Daniel states that this last resurrection, unlike previous ones, would be ruled by ten kings. But he also notes that the kingdom shall be divided, that it shall be partly strong and partly broken, verses 41 to 42. This, along with a parallel prophecy in Revelation 17, describes Europe today. Both passages show that the EU will be pared down to ten nations or closely united groups of nations. Today we see Germany uniting these nations' militaries. Once the empire is ready to rise, the world will be shocked by how efficiently it will do its deadly work. This prophesied empire will use its uni unified powers for militaristic purposes. But notice how Daniel's vision ends. In Daniel 2 verse 44 we read, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Every step toward European unity is a step toward the fulfillment of these prophecies and God's prophesied intervention in the affairs of mankind. The world doesn't see it, but these prophecies are coming to pass. Today is June 7th of 2023, and it was 225 years ago today, back in 1798, that the English economist Thomas Malthus published what became a widely influential work called an essay on the principle of population. Malthus's main prediction in this essay was dire. He argued crudely yet compellingly that mankind was multiplying too fast and the world population would soon outstrip food production, and that it would make everyone much poorer than they already were. 
and the people were already poor in the mid to late 1700s. Economic historians say that the average person at the time was earning the equivalent of about $1.75 per day. So Malthus said, yes, the world has been poor. The people have always had to struggle to feed themselves. But now we're at a point where the population is about to grow much larger. And that means we've really not seen anything yet. People will get far poorer and the population will soon outstrip food production. And there will be some terribly dark times ahead. That's what Malthus argued. And he was right about the population growth. It increased sharply just after his death, going from about 1 billion people to the present 8 billion or so. So he was right about that, but he got the rest wrong. In fact, over the 200 plus years since his essay, the average daily income increased 11 fold, leaping from about $1.75 per day to about $20 per day per person all around the world for all those 8 billion people. And as income rises, Almost every physical indicator of human well-being also improves. Food security, life expectancy, infant mortality, literacy, education, economic freedom, and the list goes on. Cato Institute scholar Indor Goklani wrote about this, saying, quote, Never before had the indicators of the success of the human species advanced as rapidly as in the past quarter millennium. So why did Malthus get it so wrong? Why did the world get richer instead of poorer? Well, it's because when he wrote his essay on this day back in 1798, he failed to understand what his nation, Great Britain, would go on to do in the years ahead. But those years ahead are when Britain really became a globe-girdling empire, raising its flag in far-flung locations all over the world and bringing the rule of law to millions of people and creating conditions that brought education and freedom and morality as well to millions around the world. Now, some of the foundations had already been laid before Malthus wrote his essay, uh, and some early steps had already been taken, but it didn't really become that globe-girdling colossus until afterward. Now, in the minds of most modern academics and pundits, empire is a dirty word. They argue that all empires are inept, bullying, bureaucratic entities, and that they bring only cruelty to the peoples that they rule. But the British Empire was different. Of course, no one argues that it was perfect. It was administered by men, and all men ruled efficiently. But history doesn't lie. And viewing the British Empire objectively reflects a dominion that, on the whole, was a civilizing force that benefited mankind. It lifted millions around the globe from squalor, darkness, and oppression. It defended freedom, and it multiplied the average daily income by about 10, and brought about so much other advancement. Many of these advancements were the result of the Industrial Revolution and associated advances of technology and science, they resulted from greater, you know, trade worldwide. And who spearheaded that revolution and disseminated its principles globally? Who opened up international free trade and protected it? Overwhelmingly, it was the British. The massive empires that had risen before Britain made no real increase in the average person's income. 
Yes, the rulers at the top would wax wealthy, but their subjects as a whole often became poorer, if anything. So the British Empire was unique. And it is true that some of the massive societal gains happened after the sun had essentially set on the British Empire. But even those gains are still the result of economic reverberations kind of emanating from the British Empire's glory days and from the initiatives that the British spearheaded. The historian Niall Ferguson wrote about this in his book, Empire. He said, No organization in history has done more to promote the free movement of goods, capital, and labor than the British Empire, and no organization has done more to impose Western norms of law, order, and governance around the world. There seems a plausible case that empire enhanced global welfare. In other words, it was a good thing. The historian Andrew Roberts also wrote about this in 2007. He said, The British Empire provided good government, uncorrupt public administration, intertribal peace, the rule of law, free trade, the abolition of slavery, famine relief, the abolition of barbaric customs, huge infrastructural advances such as railways, roads, plus irrigation projects, and in every colony nurtured its native peoples toward running their own countries once they were ripe for independence. So there are many historians who can see that the British Empire was a history-altering, civilization-changing entity, and that it was quite unlike the empires that came before it. But what very few see is that the reason why is not because of luck or something the British can really even take credit for. It's because the Creator had foreordained to make them a great empire, and for the blessings of that empire to extend broadly. The book of Genesis records promises made to Abraham and his descendants, saying that some of them would become a great company of nations. And chapter 49 compares this people to a fruitful bough with branches that run over the wall. So it's a colonizing people, a people whose presence, whose trade and commerce, whose culture and government would extend far beyond their national borders. So this is a description of what happened with the British Empire shortly after Malthus wrote his essay. And that's why the prediction of his essay didn't happen. We have a book that we send out for free, all about the British Empire and how it came about as an act of God. It's called The United States and Britain in Prophecy by the late Herbert W. Armstrong. So if you'd like to understand these Bible passages, please pick up a free copy of that. We'll leave a link to that book in the show notes for today's program, both on SoundCloud and on thetrumpet.com. And you'll also find links there to the articles that today's reports were based on and to the materials mentioned in those reports. Please also send any comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And I'd like to thank my guests today, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Josue Michels for their contributions to the episode. Many thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Jesse Hester for taking care of the audio work for this episode. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>